Welcome back to Search the Scriptures. Great to be back with all of our listeners again today as we open up God's Word and dig a little bit deeper, learn a little bit more, study some more, and try to think about what we're reading and learning and how to make the proper applications to our lives. God has given us His Word to guide us in His will. And in so doing, He has given us his word to lead us in the best way of life that a human being can live on this earth. The greatest direction, and that is toward heaven. The greatest hope, eternal life with God in Christ and the Holy Spirit in heaven. And the greatest promises and blessings that mankind can enjoy as we come to him through Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, repenting of our sins, confessing our faith, and Christ as God's Son, our Lord and Savior, and surrendering to him in baptism, at which, the, at which point the blood that he shed on the cross cleanses us of the guilt of all of our sins. And we're reborn spiritually, and we come up out of that grave of water to walk a new life, a new life, forgiven, saved. How blessed we are to have God's word. How sad it is that so few people who have ready access to it read it on any kind of a consistent basis, if at all. When there are people all over the world in other places who would so love to have a copy of the scriptures of the Bible, they would stand in line if somebody were passing them out just to have one, just to have a Bible in their possession so they could read it and learn from it and make the proper applications of those rich teachings to their lives. We need to get into God's Word. And that's what this particular program is largely about, to study God's Word, to learn what it really says, and to make the proper applications to our lives. Our prayer is that you are learning, and thereby your faith is growing, because faith comes by hearing the Word of God, Romans 10 and verse 17. And as that happens... You're coming closer to God, and your life is changing, and that ultimately will come to him through Jesus Christ, as we've noted a moment ago, for forgiveness and salvation, being baptized into him. Our prayers are with you, and our prayers are for you. Along that line, we're studying about God's grace, and of course, it is only by God's grace that we are saved. It is his gift to us but he expects us to respond to his offer of salvation by grace in respectful obedience and dedication to him on a consistent, ongoing basis. Now, we've been talking about, we've been studying about grace for some time now. We've been looking at that particular subject from different points of view or perspectives as brought out in the scriptures. We're trying to break it down to understand it in more depth and in more detail and more fully. In this particular section, we're talking about cheap grace, how some people have in their mind what they think of grace, the grace of God, and how they apply it to themselves and to people in general. That's just cheap grace. We have been looking at the rule of thumb. You get out of something according to what you put into it. Or... Put another way, you get what you pay for. Now, we understand that from an economics point of view. You want quality, you got to pay for it. 
you want low price, you're probably going to have to give up some quality. But the principle applies to other areas of life as well. If you want to have a really fulfilling and enriching and rewarding job experience, you've got to put yourself into your work. You've got to be committed. If you want to get everything out of your schooling that it offers you, again, you're going to have to put yourself into those classes, into those studies. You're going to have to make the commitment of time and energy and concentration and work. If you want to be good at some particular recreational pursuit, you've got to put yourself into that. You've got to practice. You've got to become proficient at it, learn, be skillful, develop your skills. Also relationships. If you want a fulfilling, a fulfilling and enriching relationship, maybe it's in a marriage, maybe it's in a friendship, maybe it's in a work relationship. You've got to put yourself into that relationship. You've got to make the commitment to develop and nurture and build that relationship. Well, the same principle applies when it comes to our spiritual lives. A whole lot of people want the benefits of Christianity, and that's forgiveness, redemption, salvation, eternal life, and all the blessings that go there with while we're still living in this world, they want all of that. All of those spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. But they don't want to have to live the life of a committed, dedicated, consistent, and obedient Christian. They want cheap grace. They want the blessings without the commitment. Oh, maybe just a surface level kind of commitment, but that won't do. The idea of salvation without commitment is cheap grace, and it shows terrible disrespect for the price that God paid to give us the opportunity to be saved. We've been focusing upon John chapter 1 and verse 17, where John wrote, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now we've analyzed that particular verse in depth and detail. Many people take that to mean that Christ came and brought an end to spiritual law. That's not what the verse says. The verse is referring to the law of Moses, the law that was given from God to Israel through Moses in Old Testament times. We can refer to it as the Old Testament law of Moses. Christ brought that law to a fulfillment and a conclusion as he died on that cross. Well, why? Because the Old Testament law of Moses was foretelling the coming of the Savior. It was prophesying the coming of the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus was and is that Savior, the Christ, the Messiah. And as he came, he came as the fulfillment of the grace that the Old Testament law of Moses was pointing toward in its ultimate sense the Savior would come, and he'd die on that cross 
to pay the price for the guilt of our sins so that through him we could be redeemed, we could be forgiven, we could be saved by the grace of God. Jesus came as the ultimate fulfillment of God's grace and truth. Now, we noted several texts of scripture that parallel what John said there. Help us understand even more emphatically. Romans chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. Galatians 3, verses 23 through 25. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. We also noted that there has always been spiritual law given by God to mankind going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Man was never not under spiritual law from God. The example, the classic example, was when God told Adam, or told through Adam, Adam and Eve, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't even touch it. For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now Genesis chapter 3 tells us that this was a commandment from God. Well, that's spiritual law. When they disobeyed in Genesis chapter 3 and ate of that fruit that God had commanded them not to eat, they sinned. That's a spiritual consequence of breaking God's spiritual law because sin is a spiritual reality. A spiritual reality. So when they disobeyed God by eating that fruit, they sinned. And Genesis chapter 3, the rest of Genesis chapter 3, lays out for us the judgment that God brought upon them as he held them accountable for their sin. And through that judgment upon them, that's judgment upon all mankind for all time until the Lord comes again. Sin, a spiritual reality. Sin, what is it? It's the consequence of spiritual law, breaking spiritual law. We noted also that once God had driven the man and the woman from the garden, denying them access to the tree of life, physical death became a reality for them. They were going to die physically. As long as they were still in the garden, as long as they still had access to the tree of life, they could have lived forever on this earth without sin. But once they sinned, everything changed. And so now they were going to die. God would no longer allow them access to the tree of life. And so physical death became a, a reality for them. We noted also in Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 7, that God held Cain and Abel accountable for how they would worship before him through sacrifices. He respected Abel and his sacrifice. He disrespected Cain and his sacrifice. The Hebrews writer tells us that by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. 
Faith comes by hearing the word of God, Romans 10 and verse 17. So God had obviously instructed both Cain and Abel as to how he wanted them to worship him through their sacrifices. And Abel obeyed and Cain disobeyed. He offered a different kind of sacrifice. So God did not respect Cain or his sacrifice. That's again, obviously, the result of Cain disrespecting, disobeying spiritual law from God. Otherwise, how could God have held him accountable? It also is an obvious illustration that Abel obeyed God. Again, spiritual law. And then we saw further down in Genesis chapter 4 that Cain murdered his brother, and God held him accountable for that sin. He brought judgment upon him for that sin. Well, again, how could God bring judgment upon him if there had not been a spiritual law in place that had to do with murder? The reality, the existence of spiritual law is obvious going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We noted several passages of scripture that talk about the fact that we are under law today from God, under spiritual law. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 2, we read about the law of the Spirit. In Galatians 6 and verse 2, we read about the law of Christ. The law of Christ. In James chapter 1 and verse 25, it's referred to as the law of liberty. And in James 2 and verse 8, it's referred to as the spiritual law. I'm sorry, the royal law. All of these are references to obvious spiritual law that God has given to us through the gospel, through the New Testament of Christ. He holds us accountable for living by that spiritual law. What he has communicated to us in the scriptures of the New Testament, he expects us to live by. That spiritual law. Now let me give you another example, an illustration that's obvious. When we look at Romans chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now Paul is referring here to civil authority. In other words, the laws of the land that our political, that our civil leaders lay down for us to live by, to govern us, to guide us in civil discourse. In verse 2, he goes on and says, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Now that is again a different descriptive terminology for the law of God. If we resist the laws of the land, unless they are in contradiction to God's law, then we're resisting the ordinance of God or God's law. 
It is his spiritual law that we live by the laws of the land as long as they are not in contradiction to his law. And those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be afraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. Notice this next statement. Verse 4 of Romans chapter 13. For he, that is the person in civil authority, is God's minister to you for good. Now, in other words, he is in principle there by God's design for your good, for our good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Civil law, civil authority, is here by God's decree and God's design. And therefore it is part of God's spiritual law for us that we live by the laws of the land. Now, if God did not hold us accountable for living by the laws of the land, then what in the world does the Apostle Paul mean here in Romans chapter 13? He states that God holds us accountable for living by civil authority and that the minister, or that the, the individuals who exercise civil authority are ministers of God in their positions in their positions as civil authority by principle now that's not saying that there are not some in the positions of civil authority who are corrupt there are but they're the ones who are contradicting god's spiritual law but the basic understanding and principle of civil authority is there by god's decree and god's design and it's for our good, basically. And we are to obey the laws of the land. Otherwise, God will hold us accountable. Again, the obvious understanding of civil law, or rather of spiritual law. Now, I've been emphasizing over and over that sin is a spiritual principle, a spiritual concept. Without spiritual law, there can be no sin. When John the Apostle wrote in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, we need to understand this particular principle. It's laid out clearly and succinctly. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Now, the New King James Version says sin is transgression of the law. In other words, breaking the law. Does sin exist in our world today? Does sin exist in our country? Does sin exist in our community? Does sin exist in the lives of people you know? 
Well, we would say yes, absolutely, in, all of, in answer to all of these questions. But you see what John says there, sin can only exist where there is spiritual law. Because sin is lawlessness. You can't have lawlessness or transgression of law without there being law. That should be easy to understand. In Romans chapter 3, if we turn back there, Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul wrote along this line, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then in chapter 5 and verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Sin is not imputed when there is no law. And in chapter 7 and verse 8, we read further, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, Note this last statement in verse 8 of Romans chapter 7. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Again, for sin to be a reality, law has to be in place. Spiritual law. Sin is a spiritual concept, a spiritual principle. And therefore, law has to be in place for sin to exist. Again, there's no denying that sin is all around us. It's easily observable at every turn. And so therefore, spiritual law from God also exists and is in place. And God holds us accountable for living by it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to understand fully your will for our lives. Communicated to us through your word. Help us to understand, Father, and to embrace the fact that you hold us accountable for living by your law, by living for living by your scriptures, your teachings, the New Testament of Christ, but that through our so living faithfully and obediently and consistently, you have made the way for us to be with you for all of eternity in heaven, eternal life. Praise be to you, Father. Please forgive us. Please hear our prayer. Please open our eyes and help our hearts to be opened to come to you, Father, in obedience. In Christ's name, amen.